Hello, this is Tushta Krishna Das, and you're listening to ISKCON Denver podcast, where you can hear all of our classes and kirtans. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. Gopi Janavalaba Girivara Yashodanandana Braja Janaranjana Yashodanandana Braja Janaranjana Yamuna Tira Vanacha Yamuna Tira Vanachari Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabihari Jaya Janavalaba Giribaradari Jaya Gopi Janavalaba Yashoda Nandana Braja Janaranjana Yamuna Jaya Radha Madhava Kunj 
Jagannath Bodev Subhadra Devi Ki Jai Shri Shri Gornitai Ki Jai Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Narayanam Namaskrityam Naram Chaiva Narotamam Devim Sarasotim Vyasam Tato Jayam Udirayat Nashta Prayeshwa Badreshu Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya Bhagavat Yutama Shloke Bhaktir Bhavati Naishtiki Grantaraj Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai So we're reading today from Canto 4, Chapter 2, Text 3. We'll read a few verses and then... Um, discuss it a little bit, and then we will also try to um, take some time today to share um, some glorification about Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur and or Gadadhar Pandit since it's both of their disappearance days today, correct? So... 
A lot of ecstatic mercy is coming. Okay, so verse 3, we'll chant. Etad akyahime brahman. Jamatu shwashurasya cha. Vidveshastu yata pranams. Tatyajetustyajan sati. Etad akyahime brahman. Jamatu shvashurasya cha Vidveshastu yatam pranams Tatyajetustyajansati Etad akyahime brahman Jama tu shwa shurasyacha Vidveshastu yata pranams Tatyajedus tyajansati Please recite. Kyahime brahma Jamatu shwa shurasyacha Vidveshastu yata pranam Tatyajedustyajan sati Etad akyahime brahman Jamatu Shwashurasya Cha Word for word, unless anyone else wants to chant. Okay, Jai. Etad Akyahime Brahman Jamatu Shwasurasicha Vishas to Yatha Pranams Tatyajedustyajansati Etat Thus Akyahi Please tell May to me Brahman O Brahmana 
Jamatu, uh, sorry, Jamatu of the son-in-law, Lord Shiva. Shvashurasya of the father-in-law, Daksha. Cha and Vidvesha quarrel to as to Yata from what cause Pranan her life Tatyaje gave up Dustyajan which is impossible to give up Sati Sati Translation and no purport, but purports coming up by His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami, Srila Prabhupada, Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. My dear Maitreya, to part with one's life is very difficult. Would you kindly explain to me how such a son-in-law and father-in-law could quarrel so bitterly that the great goddess Sati could give up her life. Text 4. The sage Maitreya said, In a former time, the leaders of the universal creation performed a great sacrifice in which all the great sages, philosophers, demigods, and fire gods assembled with their followers. So just to um, pick things up a little bit, because I think yesterday was CC class, and um, just to kind of get some context, we have Vidura inquiring after hearing in the, in the first chapter about how Sati gave up her life. He's inquiring from Maitreya that how could this be? Because he knows that Sati is a very chaste, um, good-natured woman and loves her father very much and also loves her husband and he explains that um, in the last verse he explains that Lord Shiva is a very worshipable person so how is it that Daksha who is also very um, an elevated personality could become dissatisfied with him how did this whole thing happen basically he heard that uh, just in passing that yeah Sati gave up her life and then he kind of uh, had to ask this question, that how is this? How is this that such a um, dramatic event could happen? <clears throat> so we're going to hear um, the beginnings today, and in the weeks, you know, days to come, we'll hear about this dramatic episode that's about to unfold, that... Um, is seemingly like family drama, but is actually teaching some very uh, deep and profound lessons uh, for spiritual life, actually. So, I'll read text four again. The sage Maitreya said, so he's responding to uh, Vidura's question that how could, this, how could this have happened? And he's starting to tell the story. In a former time, the leaders of the universal creation performed a great sacrifice in which all the great sages, philosophers, demigods, and fire gods assembled with their followers. Purport. 
Upon being asked by Vidura, the sage Maitreya began to explain the cause of the misunderstanding between Lord Shiva and Daksha, because of which the goddess Sati gave up her body. Thus begins the history of a great sacrifice performed by the leaders of the universal creation, namely Marichi, Daksha, and Vasishta. These great personalities arranged for a great sacrifice for which the demigods like Indra and the fire gods assembled with their followers. Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva were also present. Text 5. When Daksha, the leader of the Prajapatis, entered that assembly, his personal bodily luster, as bright as the effulgence of the sun, the entire assembly was illuminated, and all the assembled personalities became insignificant in his presence. Text 6. Influenced by his personal bodily luster, all the fire gods and other participants in that great assembly, with the exception of Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva, gave up their own sitting places and stood in respect for Daksha. So generally, the etiquette is in cultured society that when there's a respectable person that enters a room or an arena, especially if there's like a special event going on, then there's a way that they're received. And so in this scene here, the etiquette is that Daksha, being a senior, all others who are uh, his juniors are standing to acknowledge his presence, his entrance, with the exception of Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva. Daksha was adequately welcomed by the president of the great assembly, Lord Brahma. After offering Lord Brahma respect, Daksha, by the order of Brahma, properly took his seat. Text 8. Before taking his seat, however, Daksha was very much offended to see Lord Shiva sitting and not showing him any respect. At that time, Daksha became greatly angry, and his eyes glowing, he began to speak very strongly against Lord Shiva. Purport. Lord Shiva, being the son-in-law of Daksha, was expected to show his father-in-law respect by standing with the others. But because Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva are the principal demigods, their positions are greater than Daksha's. Daksha, however, could not tolerate this, and he took it as an insult by his son-in-law. Previously, also, he was not very much satisfied with Lord Shiva, for Lord Shiva looked very poor and was niggardly in dress. Om Jnana Timirandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshurun Militam Jena Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhara Shri Vasadi Gora Bhakta Vrinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 
Rama Rama Hare Hare All right, so I was actually thinking that we were on text two, so planning to kind of speak on that, but had also read ahead. <clears throat> and um, what I was going to discuss today, we can also, is relevant to this verse or this section. So we're about to see a great uh, dramatic scene unveil. And <clears throat> as it was questioned by uh, Vidura, what was the cause of this? So we're getting to see a little bit now how Daksha, because of his desire to be respected, becomes offended by Lord Shiva. We'll hear later in the verses how Lord Shiva was not intending to, uh, he didn't have any enmity with Daksha. He wasn't intending to disrespect him. Shiva was actually, he's always meditating on Krishna and he was fully absorbed in trance. And beside that fact, he uh, is one of the principal demigods, the three principal demigods of the entire universe. So, from that perspective, is not necessarily obliged to uh, show respect to Daksha. But because of the familial relation of being married to his daughter, Daksha was considering this is my son-in-law, he's in an inferior position. <clears throat> so, Daksha because of his desire for respect, even though everyone else was there in the assembly, was respecting him, because Lord Shiva didn't respect him, he became, he was sparked. His anger was incited. To a very great degree, actually. And it's hinted in the purport here that uh, he could not tolerate this, and he took it as an insult. And it says, previously, also, he was not very much satisfied with Lord Shiva. So Daksha uh, already had some sort of mm, issues in his relations with Lord Shiva, right? And I don't want to give away too much because the, the speakers will discuss on it in future verses. But Daksha brings up his frustration, his actual resentment that he's holding on to, that, that he was obliged to offer Lord Shiva or to offer his daughter to Lord Shiva in his in marriage but he was never interested in doing that and because Lord Brahma was his father is his father and had uh, obliged him to offer his daughter to Lord Shiva so he he does this but he holds on to some negative feelings towards uh, Lord Shiva because he has this impression that Lord Shiva looked very poor and niggardly in dress 
Lord Shiva's personality is quite unique amongst all personalities of the universe. It was stated in one of the earlier verses, some of the descriptions of Lord Shiva, but he is not the most uh, externally, at least his appearance is not externally so exalted. He actually doesn't, he lives under a tree. He's like an ascetic. He covers himself in ashes. Uh, he spends time in crematoriums. He has snakes all over his body. Um, what else? He usually just wears deer skin. And skulls also. Skulls, that's like really contaminated if you think about it. Like wearing dead bones. Like according to Vedic, like if you consider like Daksha, he's, he's like a very well-respected, cultured person. He's a prajapati, you know. He's kind of like, yeah, he's got all the external like cleanliness, niceness going on. And then Lord Shiva, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, his associate his association is completely like completely degraded persons, like like worse than what you can expect like downtown anywhere. You know. And he's not only is associating with them, but he's actually uh, it's described that he's he takes the responsibility of delivering them. Like he they uh, are you know worshiping him and following him and adoring him, and Lord Shiva's thankless task is basically to accept this and to help them to progress towards ultimate perfection, Krishna consciousness, which is a pretty difficult thing, you know. If you think about like, you know, for us we have our conditioned nature of like we might have so many difficulties, like oh I have these habits that I'm dealing with, you know I whatever, but consider being like a ghoul or a ghost or a goblin that's, you know, even more like intense sort of, you know, not even like a human. They're basically like animals. And Lord Shiva is taking the responsibility of uh, helping them to progress. So this is his association. And so Daksha is, uh, understandably, you, we can say, He's understandably, he has some issues with Lord Shiva because he's externally appears like, you know, just, I don't know, you can say some sort of a vagabond or something. And here he is, Daksha, who's become such a great personality and having such great responsibility of being a prajapati to uh, populate the whole you know, universe. Uh, he's he has this desire, this this tendency, and this is natural when one gains some responsibility or some uh, position. They des the the expectation for honor and respect comes. the The soul, well, conditioned soul, always will have a, a strong tendency, a strong desire to have, to, to be respected and to be honored. And if one actually gets a position or has some responsibility, then uh, it's almost like the, even more of a, a dangerous position because then one 
is expected even within society to have some honor and respect. So that's why it's sometimes it's described spiritual life in general is like a razor's edge because the more that one progresses uh, and uh, especially takes responsibility when it comes to an institution or, or um, some sort of religious organization, then uh, respect comes, and, and that's actually good. That's required for juniors to respect seniors. It's required, but it's not healthy for the seniors to be expecting. For, for in, in the sense that they are requiring that, right? Like if they don't get it, then they become angry. What we're seeing here from Daksha is he didn't receive respect from Lord Shiva. And because of that, he became angry. So it, it highlights the point that he was actually desiring that honor and respect. And Lord Chaitanya teaches us in Shikshastakam, Trinada Pisunichena, Tarore Pisuhishnuna, Amanina Manadena, Kirtaniya Sadahari. So if you want to actually chant the holy name uh, constantly, if you want to have uh, taste for chanting, then this desire for honor should not be there. One should not be desiring respect from others. Rather, they should be ready to give respect to all others. So Daksha, because of his uh, estimation of Lord Shiva, is uh, he's, he's actually holding, harboring resentment and he's harboring envy towards Shiva, that this personality is actually my inferior and he's not showing me respect and therefore when I don't get it I become angry and so he's about to uh, spout some words in uh, blasphemous words basically of Lord Shiva and become offensive of the greatest devotee Shiva is uh, Vaishnavanam Yutashambhu so he's actually the topmost Vaishnava He's a great devotee of Krishna. And externally, he doesn't appear so. So this is another lesson that is very important to, under, to know and to remember regularly. Actually, we were reading in Nectar of Instruction. It's there as one of the 11 you know, instructional verses that Srila Rupa Goswami gives, he explains that one should not judge a devotee on their external, just based on their external situation. Uh, the Sanskrit is Drishtai Svabhava Janiter Vapuchas Chadosher. So one should not, one should understand that a devotee is engaged in the service of the Lord and they should not see them from a materialistic perspective. They should not see the faults in their body or uh, their social position from a materialistic point of view. Just as the, the example is given that the, gun, the, gun, the Ganga is always pure. The Ganga is completely pure and spiritual and even though it might be filled with some bubbles, foam, or mud, someone who is self-realized will take bath in the Ganga 
no matter what the condition. So in the same way, Rupa Goswami instructs us that we should learn to see devotees from the perspective of how they're engaged in devotional service and not to see them according to their material, uh, external, so-called appearance. It's not just that if, if a devotee has all the external stuff, they're, they're looking good, they're, they're doing all the externals really nicely, um, then therefore they are the most elevated. Of course, we follow the rules, we follow the etiquette, we follow everything. But the ultimate determination of one's uh, devotion or, or one being a devotee is that they are engaged in Krishna's service. And we should practice and, and learn how to see others in that way. The conditioned mind has the tendency of wanting to see others in a materialistic way, just wanting to see their, yeah, especially when we're you know, living day in and day out with others. Uh, it's gratifying to the mind to remember the material faults of others. Oh yeah, that person, he's just like that. You know, he's got this tendency, he's like that, not so great. And uh, bring them down in our estimation, right? Which is what Dukkha's doing. He's, you'll see in his verses to come, he says, yeah, Lord Shiva, he just hangs out with these he has bad association, he doesn't stay clean, and all of these things in his material estimation. And he's not seeing how Lord Shiva is actually engaged in devotional service. So, and what does this do? This leads to him causing great offense to Lord Shiva, who's a great devotee. So, for us, in the same way, it's beneficial to uh, look at how we are looking at devotees, how we are seeing those around us. Are we seeing them from a materialistic point of view and just looking at their uh, material so-called um, faults and good qualities, good qualities, bad qualities, or are we seeing how they're engaged in devotional service, how they are... Um, putting their efforts and their energies towards uh, trying to please and serve the parampara. And if we do that, then we can actually really, really help to protect ourselves from becoming offensive to devotees, which is uh, the prime tendency or the prime uh, activity that will take away our taste for hearing and chanting. If we start to become offensive towards devotees in our minds or worse in our words or our actions, then automatically our taste for chanting, our taste for hearing diminishes. So therefore Rupa Goswami is, is explaining this in his Upadeshamrita, that this is 
a very important instruction. Specifically, he's speaking about how one should see a pure devotee, one who is fully engaged in Krishna's service. One should not see their bodily defects. And the principle also goes in general for devotees, that devotees are engaged in Krishna's service primarily. And although they may have uh, conditionings that they're dealing with, we should learn to see them from a perspective of how they're engaged in Krishna's service. And this will be beneficial for us, for our practice of devotional service. And that's why Prabhupada and Bhaktisiddhanta, there's anecdotes where people were coming to him, coming to them saying, you know, this devotee, that devotee, criticizing, complaining about uh, their association with, you know, different devotees finding fault. And I believe it's Bhaktisiddhanta who, who said that, um, what is it where he says that why do you um, unnecessarily have take up this service? You know, I have to do this as guru. This is my role to find fault and uh, correct it. But you don't have to do that. It's actually a very, um, it's a burdensome thing. Just indulging, especially if, if we have that indulgence in finding fault for others, it will take away the taste. So the guru, that's why it's such a um, exalted service because the guru is able to point out things in the disciple in a way that is uh, beneficial for them. So we can see here, Daksha, he's not pointing out things in Shiva just so that he can improve himself. Daksha is, he's seeing Shiva and just, he's just angry. He's just frustrated, right? So we can also see this in ourselves that is this coming from, where is this coming from, right? And later Daksha's, he's going to deny that, oh yeah, this isn't coming from any sort of angry or envious feelings. He's denying his own uh, experience that, yeah, actually I'm feeling really angry at Lord Shiva and I'm therefore going to speak badly about him. So uh, it's important to, for us as devotees to learn to introspect and see where our uh, tendency is coming from when, when if we're seeing some sort of uh, fault. And of course, it, it's not that we just turn a blind eye to what is happening around us. But the point is that as, as uh, Rupa Goswami explains in that verse of the, of the Upadesha Amrita, that one should learn to see the devotee from a spiritual perspective, how they're actually engaged in service. And in that way, that is the main estimation of a devotee and there might be other things just like the gun the ganges it's always spiritual but it might be bubbled there might be some bubbles some foam some mud here and there and it's not like someone who goes to bathe in the ganges doesn't see that they see it but they know that the ganges is spiritual so they disregard it and they and they still take the benefit of bathing in the ganges so General point is that we should, uh, we can learn from this 
story, one thing, that Daksha is estimating a devotee, he's, he's misestimating a devotee based on an external situation. And he's not considering the spiritual position of Lord Shiva. And because of his strong desire for having respect that uh, produces this great anger within him. So these are two very crucial things that uh, are directly related to actually chanting. That if, if we want to have a taste for chanting, then uh, becoming aware of this tendency and this desire for honor and respect and uh, learning how to deal with it and learning how to um, ultimately curb it and become like, like drop it, become rid of it. And then also the tendency to see devotees from a materialistic perspective. These are two things that can be very injurious for our uh, devotional process or progress in devotional service. So maybe we can have some time for comments and questions now, and then if there's time, we can uh, share about Shil Bhakti Vinod talk or and get out of it. Okay, Chifan. Thanks, Bro. It's always a good reminder to, especially living in a community of devotees. Um, because like you said, the tendency to indulge in fault finding and finding material idiosyncrasies or whatever in, in devotees is, 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 uh, is there. Um, so thanks for that. I, I think I had a, a couple things, but um, one thing I was thinking about is how Srila Prabhupada said that the thing he liked least about being a guru is that he had to uh, chastise or criticize his disciples in certain instances um, he said because they're all Vaishnavs so was, he, he didn't like doing that but at the same time he was good at it and um, he, in, um, circumstances would express anger um, and, and uh, you know appear to be really upset or be really upset about certain things in order to uplift the disciples. Um, yeah. Yes, and even as guru, it's not that he was you know, thinking, yes, I am guru, now I can just indulge. It wasn't an indulgence, right? It's, it's actually an austerity. He was feeling that I don't want to do this, but he does it out of a, as a service. And he didn't even, it's not that Prabhupada saw himself, you know, he said that he saw his his disciples as representatives of his guru. This is how the guru sees. He sees that these persons have come and I am their servant. I have to serve them by training them in devotional service. So this is the mood that the guru will correct. It's not even that, oh yeah, now I've become a guru, so therefore I can chastise people or I can find fault. That's the wrong conception. I 
Krishna. The question is still formulating in my mind, so forgive any awkwardness um, in phrasing the question. But it seems that gurus and pure devotees themselves dislike the process of criticizing devotees but understand its necessity. So, but the flaws, physical or otherwise, still exist. They see it. So what does that mean for us who may not necessarily be pure devotees but are endeavoring to make real advancement? How does that, how should we respond to defects? And I don't mean like, you know, a hobbled leg or anything. I mean like when interacting with other devotees, you know, they may say things or do things intentionally or otherwise, you know, um, whether it's one ism or another ism, you know, and what would advancement look like, look like for us in dealing with those deficiencies where we're not supposed to fault find, but if we let it Continue, it could lead to a festering of some sorts if pure devotees themselves are seeing it and correcting it, have the ability to correct it, but we don't, but understand that it's a problem. Again, how do we relate in a way that isn't injurious to either party? If that makes sense. It's important to understand that when we're in a conditioned state, we don't always see things clearly. So, uh, that's another reason why one who is qualified, the guru, the pure devotee, is the one who is authorized to give correction. Because they are seeing things clearly. Whereas a conditioned soul, we may see some apparent fault or um, flaw in another, but that might be actually completely wrong. It might be a misperception, or it might be a misjudgment, or it might also be a reflection of what's actually there within our own selves. Like the example is um, Indra. When Indra saw Krishna speaking to the inhabitants of Vrindavan, he said, look at this talkative young boy. He's so proud. He's so puffed up. All of these guys, all of these people in Vrindavan, they don't realize. They're just so puffed up, right? But actually, it was Indra himself who was puffed up. So this is the nature of the ego. Is It, it, it actually, like, totally distorts our vision and we will see something bad in someone else that's actually there within ourself. So to answer your question, I would, I, I would say that the best thing to do is to learn to turn one's vision inwards and find faults within one's own self and become like active and inspired and like enthusiastic to do that. Like okay, let me just figure out my own issues and find fault with my own self. And if I see fault with others, then Krishna says in the Gita that there's an aversion to fault finding for a saintly person. That's stated right there in the Gita, aversion to fault finding. So if I may see something 
then I don't automatically take up the, you know, the scepter to try to be the savior or the one who fixes it, right? First I ask, okay, first of all, is this even an accurate perception? Is there a chance that I could be perceiving things wrong? Probably, yeah. And second, is it even my role? Is it even my position? You know, or is there someone else who is more qualified who can actually deal with that? If, if not, and I really, I really think that it's a concern, then we can speak with someone, a trusted senior or something, and uh, reveal our minds, right? Okay, I think I'm seeing this. Um, what, should we, what can we do about it? That's okay, you know. That's why I'm saying it's not that we just turn a blind eye and just say like, oh, everybody's pure devotee and I'm so fallen and I don't see anything. It's kind of like we're on, we have blinders or something. But uh, primarily, as practicing devotees, we should learn to see the faults within ourselves. And unless it's a given service to find fault or or help others or correct others, then uh, we should be happy that we don't have to do that. Because it is, it's treading on thin ice. It's, it's, um, can be difficult, it can be easy to slip into uh, Vaishnava Parat. So, does that answer your question? Should we um, take a few minutes to talk about Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur and Gadadhar Pandit? Yes? Okay. So, yeah, Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur. Srila Prabhupada said he is the original uh, grandfather, founder of the worldwide Krishna consciousness movement. Uh, not only did he kind of revive and reinvigorate the practices of pure bhakti in his time, which had been completely practically completely covered over and convoluted. At Bhaktivinoda Thakur's time of, um, in the world, uh, the conception of, you know, Lord Chaitanya's followers was very ill-reputed. Um, people thought them to be just sentimentalists, uh, yeah, with no real philosophy, uh, or those who were actually followers were completely uh, misguided, sahajya, and so many, so many misconceptions were there in the Hindu religion and even in the followers of Lord Chaitanya. And um, Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur practically single-handedly revived the 
respectability of Lord Chaitanya's uh, Vaishnav, Gaudiya Vaishnav lineage. And uh, not only that, but he envisioned, he, he didn't just revive it within India, but he actually envisioned how it would spread throughout the entire world. And it was him who predicted that very soon there will be a great personality who will uh, travel unrestrictedly throughout the world and spread the bhakti teachings and uh, I think I remember recently during Mangal Arti one of the readings that we were doing it really struck me how Bhaktivinoda Thakur he had this vision that this is what's going to happen and he said there is no uh, there, basically there is no doubt about it that it's going to happen it's not it wasn't just some sentimental idea that he had that this is uh, you know, this is really great, it's, we're going to spread it. But he had unflinching faith in the power of Lord Chaitanya's movement and his own, Lord Chaitanya's own prediction that my name will be uh, spread throughout the world in every town and village. And it was on Bhaktivinoda's, Bhaktivinoda's uh, that strength of his assertion also that Srila Prabhupada took so much uh, inspiration. You can read in some of his early, uh, I think it's back to back to Godhead articles where Prabhupada um, is speaking about Bhaktivinoda Thakur, and you can see how much inspiration he took from Bhaktivinoda Thakur. Uh, that that yes, this movement will spread throughout the world. He was. It was no conception that that uh, of anything, any agent doing that, except for Lord Chaitanya and His mercy. And Prabhupada was simply surrendered to that mercy. And Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur also, in his envisioning, not only did he have the idea, but he practically. Uh, created a system for it called the Nam Hut. And he wrote books about it uh, amidst his so many other hundreds and thousands of verses, beautiful poetry, Sharanagati, describing the depths of you know, the heart of a devotee, the emotions and feelings of a devotee. But even practically, he had uh, a system planned out of how Krishna consciousness could spread throughout the world. And it was through small, basically nam huts, small groups um, preaching in their houses to small, small groups of people and then gradually expanding more and more and more. And he, he actually explained it in great depth, all the different roles how the thing would be organized, and he humbly labeled himself as uh, the sweeper, the sweeper in the the Nam hut, and how uh, I think, yeah, all the different personalities, Lord Chaitanya, 
and all of his associates have different roles. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur is the humble sweeper. And when I was in India, actually, um, Jai Patakamaraj, who has basically dedicated his entire life to, um, you know, making this vision a reality, Bhaktivinoda Thakur's Nam Hut and his preaching strategy, making it a reality. Jai Patakamaraj shared his realization that uh, this humble role of a sweeper seems like not that important, but what does the sweeper do? The sweeper keeps out the dirt, keeps the place clean, right? So, and this was very much Bhaktivinoda Thakur's role, is he was always uh, keeping out uh, different wrong conceptions of the tattva and the philosophy of bhakti. And in that way, he was keeping the clean, keeping the, the namhat and the expansion of the Sankirtan movement very clean and pristine. So, definitely today is a day to pray for his mercy, um, to be able to serve in some way his vision of continually expanding the Sankirtan movement. And also Bhaktivinoda Thakur was um, his deities, his uh, dear most deities were Gorgadadhar, who today is also the disappearance of Srila Gadadhar Pandit, a very, very intimate associate of Lord Chaitanya, actually considered as understood as Srimati Radharani. And there are many pastimes also with Gadadhar Pandit, but one that is relevant to what we were speaking about today, not judging a devotee according to the externals, is uh, in regards to uh, Gadadhar Pandit meeting Pundarik Vidinidi, who was a very wealthy merchant. And when Gadadhar Pandit went to see him, he was, I think he even had a spittoon and so many servants and maidservants, and uh, Gadadhar Pandit was su surprised and started to doubt that, is this really a great advanced devotee. He had heard from Mukunda that this is an advanced devotee. And he doubted it according because he saw the externals. But then Mukunda spoke that verse about Putana and how could how could anyone worship any other lord than Krishna because Putana came to kill him and Krishna made her um, his his mother. He's so merciful. So this verse, you know, put Pundarik Bidinidi into complete ecstasy. And so his internal state became manifested externally. And Gadadhar Pandit was um, humbled. And so much so that he actually requested to take shelter of Gadadhar Pandit. He said, I, I've committed an offense just by seeing him externally in my mind, seeing him from an external point of view. And therefore I have to um, rectify this offense. And the only way to do that is to take initiation from him. And so that's what he did. So...
Yeah, I would ask for more, but we can all share more tonight. But I think now we should probably end because it's... Oh, there's no breakfast, right? Fast day? Okay. Well, does anybody want to share anything then? Any inspiration? Should I repeat it? Or... Was Pundarik Vidyaniti? I think so, yeah. He was chewing some pan or betel nut or something like that. He was basically like almost intoxicated and similar, very similar like Lord Shiva, you know, just like, who is this? How is this a great devotee? You know? So it's there in the Bhagavatam, it's also there in Lord Chaitanya's Leela. How we can miss. Yeah, he's actually Vrishabhanu. Radharani's father. Yeah, so Srimati Radharani is taking shelter of her father in the form of Pundarik Vidyaniti. Mother Nidra, would you like to share anything? Uh, anything? Tell you the uh, contemporary uh, Nubhadrik Ashram, Gorgadadhar pastime. And that is that uh, when we got our um, large uh, Mahagornitai deities from Jaipur, so they stayed with us in the Brahmacharini Ashram, which is, Bra you know, Brahmachari Ashram now, in the closet. <laughs> so we lived with them in the closet until they were installed. And then um, I was uh, doing Sankirtan here and there in L.A. sometimes, and I heard that, um, that uh, when Jayapataka Maharaj came to visit here, he said, oh, you're worshiping Gorgadadhar. And everyone was bewildered. <laughs> and he said, well, that's the position they're in. And they said, what? So he was explaining, you know, certain position indicates Gorgadadhar. So you make a decision. Are you going to worship Gorgadadhar here or are you going to worship Gornitai? So devotees figured out they're going to worship Gornitai because that's what we do, you know. That's how Prabhupada did it. And uh, so they approved switching the deities. So they switched, and then, you know, he said, yeah, you've been worshiping Gorgadadhar. And we thought, wow. <laughs> we, we didn't at that time know we were um, in the mood of the worship of uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, because, you know, it was really a mistake. So then they switched, and we're worshiping Gornitai. Sometimes uh, devotees would say, well, what's the name of your deities? We say, Gornitai. <laughs> that's all they've been called here. You know, they could have been something else, but Gornitai. Any last words?
Alright, so Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur Ki Jai Shri Gadadhar Pandit Ki Jai Shri Grantaraj Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai Srila Prabhupada 